welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue. Of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, and you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days when Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, your faith and servants, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. 
Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Isn't that amazing to hear that read? Let's pray. Father, as we hear your word this morning, the the words of your son from Revelation 2, um, we're aware that his word is like a double-edged sword. We're aware that his eyes are like a flame of fire, and we're aware that Jesus knows our works. He knows our hearts. He knows the inside of us better than we know it. So this morning we pray, Lord, along with King David in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there is any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Father, we pray you'd send your spirit to do that in power in each one of us. Lord, we pray that you do it for the joy of your people and for the glory of your name. And all God's people pray, amen. We've started this new series in Revelation. I think it's just been an amazing time for me of study. We're in Revelation 2 here, and we saw last week, guys, that the book of Revelation is a book for you. It's not a book for experts, not a book for some future people. It's a book for you. It's not a hidden book. It's a revelation. It's something revealed. And it reveals something about Christ. It reveals something about our world. And it reveals something about our own hearts. And this section really does that. So chapters 2 and 3 are traditionally called the letters to the churches. And it's in these chapters that Jesus gives us like a heart-penetrating analysis. He looks at what's going on in the very insides of us. How many of you guys have had an MRI? How many of you guys enjoyed it? I've had multiple MRIs, and uh, I remember one time I went to this place. It was down on South 79, and it was decorated like a jungle for some reason. I think it was to make you relaxed, but it was all like jungle trees and stuff. But they had nature documentaries of animals being killing each other and stuff. And you kind of wait till you go in. And then when you go in, the, the, the guy who was running it had a really soft voice, like excessively soft. He was like, okay, so you're going to go in there, and it's going to be fine. And if you freak out, just push this button. And I was like, I'm not going to freak out. It's fine. It's okay. If you do freak out, touch the button. And the way he kept saying that, I was like, I'm going to freak out. So, and then when I went in there, it was crazy how loud it was. Was your MRI loud? This is like one of the most advanced tools we have, and it sounded like there were like loose bolts in there and stuff. I don't know what was going on in there. And you're compressed, and you're already in pain. In my case, it was a herniated disc, and I'm trying to hold still, and it's just a miserable experience, right? And on top of it being kind of a scary experience is what are they going to find? That's the scariest part of that, right? Well, as we're here in Revelation 2 and 3, we're getting a very, a much deeper analysis than any MRI. We're having our very hearts examined, and it can be scary, It can be concerning. But the cool thing is, guys, is that this is being done by Jesus. And whatever he finds, he can fix. Right? Amen? And you go in for an MRI, you don't know that what they find they can fix. But in this case, anything that Jesus reveals to you this morning about yourself is something that he has revealed because he intends to change you. He intends to transform you. He intends to cover that with his blood and then use his blood as a way of transforming you. So we don't have to be afraid to have our hearts examined, nor should we be resistant. A lot of times when we are convicted by the word of God, our immediate response is defense. No, 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 not really me. Or no, 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 have you looked at her? 
Or, you know, that's really more true of him. Oh, man, I wish he was here to hear this, right? Those kind of things. We do these defensive moves. We don't need to do that with Jesus. We want him like a good MRI. We want him to see everything, and we want him to transform us. And so in these next two chapters, that's what we're going to see. Um, what they are is they're actually customized letters to seven historical churches. I mentioned last week that we tend to kind of go into Revelation and ignore that it was written to actual first century churches. These are the seven churches that it was originally written to. And it's actually written in the order that the letters would be delivered. Okay? And so if you had a map, and it's not here, and I'm not, I didn't ask him for one, you have like Turkey, Asia Minor here. You have Patmos, a little island here. He writes his letter here. Uh, the courier brings it, and he goes around in kind of a semicircle, right, to deliver the letters. And they're in that order. So it's Ephesus first, all the way around. We're going to look at the first uh, four churches this morning. And what we're going to see is that they have this outline. And the outline, if you look at it, maybe you should do that later this week. Look at the outline. It's beautiful what he does. Every letter has this outline. First, there's a personal, relevant intro. Jesus introduces himself with images he took from chapter 1. There's a whole bunch of images and ideas about who Jesus is from chapter 1. Each church has a little piece of that, and that piece of that happens to relate to the exact issue they have. Isn't that cool? And so Jesus is revealing himself to be the solution to whatever their issue is. And then the next thing he says is he has a penetrating analysis. He says, I know. You know, I know. He knows their situation. He knows their problems. Um, these churches are diverse. It's interesting because some of them are only like 40 miles away from each other, but they're in very different situations. Jesus knows all of that. And then there's an exhortation. He tells them a particular thing that they ought to do, and then he gives them a benediction. And the cool thing about the benediction is the benediction is also tailored for their situation, but instead of being drawn from chapter 1, it's drawn from deeper in the book of Revelation. So all these benedictions will show up later in the letter. And that just reminds us, guys, that this letter, the whole thing was written to them. It wasn't like they got the first seven letters, they got their little letter, and then the rest was for someone else. This whole letter is for them. And in every case, what's really cool is what Jesus is showing with these letters. In every case, the thing they need most is to see Jesus more clearly and to appreciate his work more deeply. In the intros, it's seeing Jesus more clearly. In the benedictions, it's seeing what he's about to do more clearly. And so these letters aren't just about them. They aren't just about us. They're ultimately about Jesus. So let's start in the first, uh, with the first letter. The first letter is to the harbor city of Ephesus. And Ephesus was a church of loveless orthodoxy. The Ephesians love truth. But people, not so much. Take a look at verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who say they're apostles and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. Guys, that's an amazing accommodation to get. And Jesus does this. If there's things to commend, he starts with that. It's beautiful. He starts with affirmation. He starts with, hey, these are some things I appreciate. And how would you like to get that commendation from Jesus? It's glowing, really, isn't it? How they've served him faithfully over years. Jesus himself appreciates when you're zealous for the truth of the gospel and for righteous living. And guys, he knows that it wasn't easy to do in Ephesus. What they were doing was not easy to do in Ephesus. If you go back and you look at Acts 19 and Acts 20, you'll see it's a church that had a massive temple to Artemis there. 
It was a place of great religious idolatry. Um, they found all over the ancient area here, the Mediterranean area, they found these little clay Artemis temple statues. They were souvenirs. This was a place, it was like a religious pilgrimage. It was like a religious Disneyland. You would go there for idolatry. You'd bring home a little model of the temple. This was a place of great idolatry. It was also a place of great magic arts. We see that in the book of Acts as well. So it was a lot of the occult. And when Paul left in, in Acts 20, he warned them that their greatest danger was going to come from the inside, that false teaching was going to creep in as soon as he left. And so these guys guarded the truth. They listened to Paul's warning. They did it, and Jesus appreciates it. You know what else Jesus appreciates? He appreciates their intolerance. Take a look at verse 6. And yet, and yet you have this. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate right? Real loyalty, guys, also includes having not just, you know, an intellectual response to false teaching, but an emotional response. And and the reason is because, guys, when people try to lead people away with false teaching, they're leading them away from Jesus. And so people that are passionate about the truth are going to have a passion uh, against false teaching. Now, we don't know who these Nicolaitans were. They keep being brought up. It's, It's super frustrating not to know who they were. We don't know who they were. We don't know exactly what they taught. All we know that whatever they taught, Jesus hated it, and so did the Ephesians. And so the Ephesians, guys, they love the truth. They love the truth. But people, not so much. Take a look at verse 4. But I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. You know, he's like, you know all the right answers. You do all the right things, but where's the love? Where's the love? Somewhere along the way, in fighting the good fight of truth, they just became the fight, and that was it. That was all that was left of them, was to fight. And this happens, and there are certain ministries that are characterized by this. Uh, ministries that are constantly fighting for the truth, and pretty soon you find out, like, that's all they have is a fight. That's all they are is a fight. It happens. It can happen to any of us. We can become cold and hard and difficult and contentious. A uh, fight is all that's left. And, you guys, this isn't a small deficiency. Remember what Paul said about love? He said, if I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm like a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and can understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith, even as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver my body to be burned, but I have not love, I've gained nothing. He says three times, it's nothing without love. And the church of Ephesus, for them to repent, meant for them to return to loving the way they used to love. How about you? Think about your Christian life. As you've grown in knowledge, as you've grown in doctrine, as you've grown in understandings of the truth, have you also grown in love for people? Or have you lost that? If you think back to how you were when you first became a Christian, did you love people more then? Right? Let me ask it to you this way. In this time, in this season, is everyone around you an idiot? Is everyone around you annoying? Is everyone around you disappointing you? Is everyone around you ignorant? Are those your common thoughts? Or is everyone around you a gift given by God to love? Right? Might be convicting for some of you. It's like, yeah, everybody's pretty much an idiot around me. Okay, you've lost your first love, the love you had at first. What do you say to somebody who's lost their love? So who doesn't seem to love people anymore? They love the truth but they don't seem to love people. Look at what Jesus says to him. First thing he says is, remember how you used to be. Look at verse five. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent to do the works you did at first. 
He's like, remember when you were like, you didn't know hardly anything about the Lord, but you were a believer, but you hardly knew anything. And you were super rough around the edges, but you really loved people. He's like, go back to that. (laughs) Don't go back to being rough around the edges. Go back to loving people. There's no reason why you can't go back to where you've been. Jesus says, look back to that. He also says that you're not going to have any witness in the community. You personally won't, and our church won't have a witness in the community without love. Look at verse 5 again. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place until you repent. He's like, if the love leaves a church, if the love leaves, you know, a body of believers, then eventually their witness is gone too. This lampstand, it's a picture of how they would be a light in their community. Guys, people don't come to any church or our church because of our theology, okay? Non-Christians, they aren't like driving by and they go like, man, those guys have sweet theology, Okay, nobody's coming to the church for that reason. Nobody's coming to Christ because they see a church that has all their theology together. What do they come for initially? It's love, right? It's like, look at how they love each other. That's what happened in the first century. I mean, most people, non-believers, they have no idea what theology even is, right? They have no idea about our doctrine. It's not that our doctrine isn't important, but it's not the thing that puts the light out in the community for us. He says that if we don't return to our love, he's going to turn the lights out. And there's some churches like that. Some churches die because Jesus pulled the plug on them. He took their lampstand out. The love left, and Jesus went, you're done, right? And so he says, return. What else does he say? I really like what he says in in verse 7. He basically says that love is going to take fighting. Look at verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What's conquering in that context? Verse 7. What would it look like to conquer in the context of verse 7? It'd be to return to your love, right? That's what conquering looks like. That's, if you look at the context, and he says, those who conquer, what's the conquering? It'd be to return to the love you used to have. What does that mean? Guys, love takes fighting for, right? Married people, have you noticed? Love takes fighting for, right? Can't be passive. You have to be aggressive. You have to go after it. Guys, friends, you know, maybe you have certain friendships that have dwindled during this time. Love takes fighting for as a church, we have to fight to love one another. It's going to take effort. You've got to fight against it. Maybe you've got to fight against your own flesh. You've got to fight against your own pride. You've got to fight against your own bitterness. But love is conquering. Second church, Church of Smyrna. Different kind of church. And what's neat is the diversity. This church was a, a church of people who were faithfully following Jesus and suffering greatly for it. I mean, this place would have been just brutal to live in. Look at verse 8. To the angel of the church of Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. These people, guys, suffered financially massively. This word poverty doesn't just mean like, you know, you can't afford the Spotify premium account anymore. Like this was people in abject poverty. This is like homelessness type poverty. And uh, first century Christians faced massive losses for following Jesus. Because guys, in the first century, there's no separation of church and state. And there was no separation of church and work, right? In the first century, Christians that refused to offer worship to the emperor, to the Caesar, were banned from trade associations and business transactions. They were cut out of the economy. And so these people that were artisans or they manufacture things or whatever they did, farmers, they would be cut out from the economy if they would not offer worship to the emperor. In Revelation 13, it talks about Christians who were not able to buy and sell because they would not take the mark of worship to the beast. 
the emperor during this time, Domitian, he demanded to be addressed as Lord and God. How scary would that be to live in an empire where the person demanded to be called Lord and God? He did. He demanded to be called Lord and God. And anyone who wanted to be successful in Smyrna had to offer worship to that beast. That's what they had to do. Or they were cut out. And so these people were suffering financially. They were also suffering, though, physically. Take a look at verse 10. He says, uh, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil will throw some of you in prison. Then he says later, Be faithful unto death. They were being killed for this. And they were being killed for this because they're being turned in by certain people for not doing this kind of worship. We can see in verse 9, it says that the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. We read this in the 21st century and we think, man, that sounds kind of anti-Semitic. But we have to remember, guys, that John and Jesus were Jews. So this clearly cannot be anti-Semitism. We read it because we're very sensitized to this kind of thing. But what was happening during this time is that the Jews in that area, they were exempt from emperor worship. Uh, the Roman Empire had figured out a long time ago, you just can't make Jews do this. Like, it's, there's no point in continuing to kill them, and they're not going to submit. So they were eventually given an exemption on this. But Christians were not. And so what would happen is when there was rivalry between Jews and Christians in that area, just like in the book of Acts, um, they would often turn them into the Roman Empire. And so that's what's going on here. It's nothing against Jews particularly in here. It's the fact that they were the ones that were turning in the Christians for not worshiping the emperor. And if they would not renounce Christ, they'd be killed. And we actually have a a story from history about a pastor from this church. His name was Polycarp. Have you guys heard of Polycarp? Really cool name. Maybe, you know, our kids are older. Maybe if you're going to have a kid sometime soon, a boy, you name him Polycarp. I don't know. It's available. We don't have any Polycarps in our church. His name was Polycarp. He was actually a disciple of John's. Isn't that a trip? The guy who wrote the Revelation? He was John's disciple. So this guy was right, right at the source there. Polycarp was probably in his late 20s, around the time that the Revelation was written. But later in his life, he became one of the pastors of this church, the church in Smyrna that was dealing with all this persecution. And when Polycarp was an old man, there was a warrant for his arrest went out. And the church sent him away to a farmhouse, and uh, some of the Roman officers that were trying to find him tortured a young man until he told them where Polycarp was. He shows up to the location. Polycarp doesn't try and run. Polycarp's 86 at this point. He doesn't try to run or anything. He actually makes his captors a meal, makes him dinner, gives him some food, goes off to pray for a little bit before they take him back. The officer's feeling super guilty on the way back. He says, he says Polycarp, what harm is there? in saying Caesar is Lord and offering a pinch of incense on the altar and sparing your life. It's not a big deal, just do it. Like, we don't want to kill you, you're an old man. Like, this isn't something we want to do. He refused. Polycarp gets interrogated by the pro-council. He kind of makes him the same offer. He says, respect your years, Polycarp. Change your mind. Swear by the fortune of Caesar and I'll release you. Curse Christ. And Polycarp says this, for 86 years I've been his servant and he has done me no wrong. And how can I now blaspheme my king who saved me? This 86-year-old man was burned at the stake. They didn't have to tie him or pin him there. He said, I'll stand. I'll do it myself. I'll stand next to the stake. And they burned him to death on February 23rd, um, 156 AD, an 86-year-old man. That's the kind of people that were there in the church of Smyrna. That's the kind of people that got this letter. Let me ask you this. How about you? I think this is worth asking as Christians, even in our environment, are you prepared to die for Jesus? I think a lot of times we think, you know, as American Christians, there's just no way that would happen or anything like that. But guys, nowhere in Scripture have you been promised 
to escape tribulation and death for Jesus. It's not been promised to you. I know some of you probably think, you know, well, no, if it got really bad, God would rescue me out of here. He's never said that, okay? Polycarp died that way. Many of God's people have died that way. Things can change in an instant in, in, in countries and in lands. I mean, things can happen. And um, nowhere in Scripture have you even promised that you would not be killed like Polycarp. This letter could be at some point written to you and to your family. And I just ask you, are you prepared to die for Jesus? It's, it's throughout the scripture. I mean, Jesus said, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross and follow me. What's the cross? It's an, it's an item of execution. Okay, that's what it meant to become a Christian back in the day. And um, you might say, well, this is super heavy. What, you know, how does somebody prepare for that? Well, let's see what Jesus said to him. How did Jesus prepare them to face death for him? First thing that Jesus said is he reminded them of his sovereignty. Take a look at verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. For 10 days you will have tribulation. That 10 days, you're probably like, oh yeah, 10 days, that's cool, I can do 10 days. That was 10 days in prison until you're executed, okay? The, the prisons weren't for keeping you there. They were for keeping you there until trial or to execution, okay? And later on, he says, to death. And so how does he encourage him here? He actually names the number of days, Jesus is sovereign over any suffering that we'll encounter. We can rest in the fact that he is in control and that he is working all things together for our good. That's what Romans 8 tells us. It says that even death and torture and suffering will ultimately be for our good and for his glory. So remember he's sovereign. Jesus also says, remember that there's a life better than this life. Look at verse 10 again. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. How did Jesus introduce himself to this church? Do you see it? as the one who died and came to life. And now he's saying that if you will die for me, he's, I'll, I'll raise you again. There is a life better than this life. There's a life to come. Later, there's a beautiful picture of this in, in chapter 11 with the two witnesses. The two witnesses symbolizing the, the faithful, persecuted church and how they die. They're killed off by the beast and they're killed off by his, his forces. And what happens? The whole town rejoices, right? The whole city rejoices to see the Christians dead in the street. And then what happens? They're very much perplexed when they come back to life. <laughs> they come back to life later, right? Suddenly they're alive. Guys, Polycarp's getting his day of resurrection. You will get your day of resurrection. There's a life that's better than this life. And that's what people who've died for Jesus all throughout have, have known, is they've known that this life is not your best life. It's not your only life. It's not your longest life. That there's a life that's better and deeper to come in the resurrection, he also reminds him that there's a death worse than death. Look at verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Polycarp knew this too. One of the things I didn't mention in the story is that that proconsul he said, well, I'm going to send ravenous beasts on you and kill you. And they used to like sew animal skins on them and let animals attack them and kill them. And he goes, yep, then send the beasts. What Polycarp said, a six-year-old dude. He's like, all right, send the beasts. Next thing was, well, I will, I will burn you. And Polycarp said this, You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. Like Polycarp knew there was a death that was, that was way worse than death. And that he was spared from that second death. Third church, and you'll see the diversity here. The uh, church of Pergamum. These guys were cultural compromisers. These believers in Pergamum, they were courageous when they were attacked directly, but now they're falling to kind of an indirect attack. So they had already had a suffering like Smyrna event that had happened. Take a look at verse 12. 
But to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And so Pergamum, they had already had their Smyrna time. They had already had a time of great persecution. Some of them had been killed for the faith. And Jesus commends that. Like they were willing to stand up. When they had a frontal attack, when they were attacked directly, when they were told you're going to die, they were like, all right, then we'll die. They were courageous that way. They were really good at dealing with a frontal attack. You know, when it was obvious, they were there and they said, you know what? You're going to have to kill me then. They responded like Polycarp. The problem is, is that Satan changed his tactics. He went, okay, well, the direct attack didn't work, obviously. It's too obvious. Let me try something more subtle. Take a look at verse 14. But I have this against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some that hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So Satan wasn't able to take them out by direct physical persecution. That makes some people fall away. It didn't work for them. So he tries a more indirect attack. And he makes this reference to Balaam. And you guys are like, oh my gosh, so many details. And there's a lot of details, right? So he's drawn from the Old Testament. And you guys remember this story of Balaam? It's the talky donkey thing. Um, but Balaam in the book of Numbers. So there was a Moabite king, Balak, and he wanted to destroy the Israelites. And so he hires Balaam to come and do a curse. You could apparently do that, hire a guy to curse. Well, he wasn't able to do the curse. He wasn't able to attack Israel directly by a curse. And so Balak tried something less direct. He tried cultural compromise. He decided, well, let me introduce these Israelite men to Moabite women. And he knew that they would seduce them into idolatry and immorality And so Balak's direct attack failed. He tried this indirect attack of cultural compromise. That's what was happening in Pergamum. That's why he brings this up, right? He goes, you guys will know the story. It's kind of like that, what's happening with you guys. It's an indirect attack. Having passed the test of persecution, they were now failing at cultural compromise. You see this whole thing about eating food sacrificed to idols, and you might be confused because Paul was saying, like, maybe it's okay to do that. In this area, it was not okay to do that, and the reason was... Eating meat sacrificed to idols in this cultural context and this sexual morality were probably connected to pagan banquets that honored uh, particular gods. So you'd come to a pagan banquet, probably at a temple, and it was the table of the god. So you're eating at the god's table. You're eating his food. Sexual immorality was often involved in that kind of worship. And these pagan banquets, you say, well, why would they want to do this? They're Christians. They were an important part of society and business. That's where you went to make connections. If you wanted to be a part of the society there, you would go to these banquets. If you were invited them, you'd certainly go because you're going to make business contacts. All the kinds of good things are going to happen for you. These Christians were tempted to do this because they didn't want to be ostracized. They didn't want to be ostracized by society and business. This social acceptance was a means of economic survival. And so how about us? Think about yourself. Take a look at your own life as a Christian. Um, These guys were very faithful in the beginning, and then they kind of, they eroded, you know? They they started to compromise. Think about yourself. As you've been a Christian for years, do you look more and more like the culture around you? You know, at, at school, or at work, or with your friends? Do you stand out less than you used to? Did you kind of decide, like, you know what, I need to blend in more? You know, have you become kind of a chameleon Christian? You, you, you can blend into any environment you're in. Nobody would persecute you because nobody can tell, Right? That's what was going on here. 
And so what do you say to somebody that, you know, before you, like, oh, man, you were so faithful before. You would stand up for the truth before. And now look at all the things that you're doing. What would you say to somebody like that? Well, look at what Jesus says to him. He basically tells him, you'll never get ahead by leaving God's word behind. Look at verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus' word, guys, this word is a sword. And if you play with it, you will get cut. There's no kind of taking God's word and trifling with it, taking God's word and knowing what he commands and then refusing to do it. It's a sword. You play with it and you're going to get cut. To these Christians who were tempted to blend in for social acceptance and things like that, he's reminding them, he's like, you know my word. I, I'm not playing around. You know what I've commanded you to do, and you're never going to get ahead ultimately by this kind of compromise. You think that this is going to work, and it's going to help you financially. It's going to get you going and all this stuff. But the fact of the matter is, is that you can't win against Jesus, right? Your arms are too short to box with God, right? Your arms are too short to box with God. And he also says another thing to these Christians who are kind of, they're blending in, wanting social acceptance, and they're wanting to be on the, kind of on the inner circle. Look at what he says to them. It's really beautiful. Jesus tells them that he's got for them a better banquet, better acceptance, and a better name. Look at verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, which no one knows except him. You're like, okay, this is getting really hard to understand what's going on here. We kind of understand hidden manna, right? So these people, they're tempted to come to these like pagan banquets, right? For acceptance, for connections, for help to really kind of build their lives and be able to be somebody in the community. And what does he say? He goes, Jesus says, did they offer you a feast? I can offer you hidden manna. I can offer you a food that doesn't compare. And that food we know is himself. He's all, I can offer you hidden manna. Did you want that pagan feast? I can offer you hidden manna. He also says, did they offer you acceptance? These white stones were often used as tickets of admission to banquets. I know it sounds like the Flintstones or something, but um, they would give them like a special white stone, something you can just find on the road and give it to them and say, hey, you know, come to my party. You kind of hand them that. That's how you get in. And Jesus is saying, did they offer you acceptance? I can give you a greater acceptance. I can give you an acceptance with God. Did they offer you a chance to make a name for yourself? He says, I'll give you a new name. It's a name that God has given you, some sort of new name that he gives us that shows that we're his, that we belong to him, that we're his children, that we're, that we're a part of who he is. He's saying to this church, he's like, guys, everything the world offers is a cheap imitation of what I'm offering you in the gospel. Isn't that amazing? And then the last church we'll look at, Church of Thyatira. They were too loving to judge. Church of Thyatira was loving. But they weren't loving enough to tell you the truth, <laughs> okay? And I think this is one that, you know, in our day and time, this is a, a beautiful one for us to hear. The church of Thyatira. Now, this is where Lydia was from, right? In the book of Acts, Acts 16. She was uh, the, the merchant of purple that was uh, saved in Acts 16. She came from Thyatira. It's just kind of a manufacturing town. It's inland. It's not as glitzy as the other places. And they were a very loving church. Look at, look, look at verse uh, 18. To the church of Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. He said, I know your works, your love and your faith and your service and your patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. This is good, okay? This is something you really want to hear from Jesus. He's saying you're loving, you're faithful, you're patient, and you know what? You're just getting better. Isn't that great? It's so great. And these were super loving people. 
You know, this is the church where you go and you'd show up and you'd be like, oh, I got to go back there. Those people are just so loving, so good, right? But there's a hole in their love. And, and this is the hole in their love. They wouldn't love you enough to tell the truth. Look at verse 20. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. In some ways, Thyatira is the opposite of Ephesus, right? So Ephesus, the church is like super solid on truth. And if you're like deviating, you'll know, okay? They're going to let you know. You're like, hey, no, no, the way you talk about the Trinity, not exactly right. Hey, the way you're doing that business thing, nope, not exactly right. Like they would be truth, right? They're total truth, but no love, right? Thyatira is the opposite. They're, they're, they're all about loving you, but they're not going to tell you the truth. So they're kind of mere opposites here, right? The church of Thyatira had the wrong kind of tolerance, right? Remember, there's the right kind of tolerance, there's the wrong kind of tolerance. They tolerated this false teacher. This false teacher, he calls her Jezebel, probably not her real name. That would be a neat significant. Uh, coincidence if it was, but it's probably just a code word that he's giving for her. They're going to know exactly who this is when he calls them out, because that was the name of an evil queen in the Old Testament who led God's people away. And so saying Jezebel-like. And like the church in Pergamum, she was was taking this softer stance on these pagan temple feasts. And she might have been calling it a deeper understanding, because later on he says the deeper things to say, and she might have been saying like, yeah, you know, like most Christians think that, but you know, if you go to these and you don't really mean it, maybe you cross your fingers, you know, that there's some way to kind of compromise and, and if there's a deeper understanding. Guys, the church of Thyatira wasn't willing to call her out. No matter how unbiblical her teaching got, they just wouldn't deal with it. You know, maybe they didn't want to come across as harsh. I think we all feel that, right? I don't want to be harsh. We don't want to be one of the, like fundamentalists, you know, we don't want to be unloving. And so we're just going to kind of let them figure it out, you know? Let the kid play with the Drano and drink some of it. They'll be fine. You know, let them figure it out on their own, right? It's this kind of false kind of love because, you know, we're told to speak the truth in love, right? The church in Ephesus spoke the truth without love, and truth without love isn't really truth after all. And then the church in Thyatira, they would speak truth. They would not speak truth um, because of their love. And love without truth isn't really love. And so they, they really have to go together, right? I mean, Was it loving for this church to not tell the false teacher that she was teaching damnable heresies? It's not loving to her. Was it loving to her followers to not tell them that they were following somebody that was leading them in a path of destruction? Not loving, right? Uh, Was it loving to the rest of the church not to warn them of this deadly teaching that infected their church? Not loving, guys, right? A, A true friend tells you the truth. Jesus is that true friend, right? Jesus is a true friend. You know he loves you, but he tells you the truth, just like he does in this letter. How about you? Are you one of these people that finds it very hard to tell people the truth? Very hard to tell people things they don't want to hear. Are you the type to kind of shy away from talking about hell or sin or, you know, the holiness that God requires of believers? Like, is that something you like, oh, I just don't like how it sounds. I don't feel like people are going to really think I love them if I tell them things like that. What do you say? What do you say to somebody like that? What do you say to somebody that won't draw any lines on biblical truth? Somebody who seems to tolerate anything in the name of being loving. Let's see what Jesus said. Jesus wanted to remind them, I think, that they are not more gracious than he is. (laughs) Look at verse 21. I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent for her sexual immorality. Guys, you're not more loving and kind and generous than Jesus. Okay, 
I know some of you think you are. You know, you read in the Gospels, Jesus says a lot of scary things. He says a lot of very things, and you're like, ooh, sounds a little extreme for our times. You know, and you want to get in there and say, no, no, what Jesus really meant was this, or, oh, you got to understand this. It's like, guys, you're not more loving than Jesus. That's what you think you are when you're doing that. You're like, he's gracious, but man, let me smooth him out a little bit. I'm more gracious than he is. And Jesus is reminding like, I gave her time to repent. Like, you don't even know what I've been doing in this whole situation. She knows exactly what she's doing. Um, also, we have to be reminded, if we won't kind of come down with hard lines, that Jesus is a holy judge. Look at verse 21. I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I've thrown her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I have thrown into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. He just keeps giving me opportunities to repent, right? I will strike her children dead, probably her followers, I don't know. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches minds and hearts and gives to each according to their works. I mean, we have to remember, guys, that Jesus is a holy judge. And to miss that is to miss a huge part of the gospel. Because the gospel isn't like, hey, I know you've kind of fallen into some bad stuff. It's not really your fault. Jesus is here to fix it, okay? That's not the gospel, right? The gospel is, is that we've been in rebellion to a holy God. We deserve judgment in hell, and yet Jesus has died on the cross to pay the full debt of our sin on the cross, that God's holy wrath has been taken away from us onto himself on the cross. Those are different messages, right? Those are, we can't misrepresent Jesus as some sort of a harmless hippie. He was not, Okay. You read the Gospels, and he doesn't come across that way. You read Revelation, and he does not come across that way. We have to make sure that we properly represent the Gospel, which means we mention hell, we mention sin, we mention holiness. It is unloving to do otherwise, because it leads people away from the only person who can save them. Remember how he introduced himself in verse 18, that he has eyes like a flaming fire of feet of burnished bronze. Remember from last week, those feet are for crushing his enemies. And so it's really important. The other thing I think he wants to tell him here is check your loyalties. Check your loyalties. If you're the kind of person that won't draw, draw any hard lines and you won't really speak out really clearly about the gospel and about judgment, check your loyalty. Look at verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my Father, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I think it's really important if we're the type that we're too loving to judge, too loving to say anything, too loving to tell the truth, is we need to really check our loyalties. Do we love this corrupt culture more than we love the kingdom of God? That can happen. Remember Lot's wife? I'm sure she didn't love Sodom when she showed up. But by the end, she looked back at it. Why? Because she loved it more than the Lord. And I think we really need to have to check our loyalties. This world is going to be judged and transformed and made new to the, to the specifications of the kingdom of God. I mean, the new Jerusalem will descend. The world's going to be made new. Jesus is going to reign here in righteousness and make this place right. We ought to long for that far more than we long for the things of this world. And so we got to check our loyalty. So one of the fascinating things about this book, guys, and I think it comes out in this section, is that Jesus himself is the fearsome judge. I think that's a picture of Jesus that we really need to see. And Jesus is both the lion of the tribe of Judah 
but he's also the lamb who was slain. That's the amazing beauty of Jesus, right? Is that he is the king who's come to judge, and yet he is the one who's laid down his life for his enemies to take away our sins. When this whole world, guys, is gathered together for judgment, we're going to either meet him as savior or judge. And I think that's really important for us to realize as we just had Jesus kind of examine our hearts and, and, and point out where we're in sin. We need to remember, guys, that there's coming a day when we're going to see Jesus as Savior or Judge. You're going to meet him one way or the other. you meet him as the Lion of the tribe of Judah or as the Lamb that was slain for your sins. And I just want to ask you, and those of you on the live stream as well, have you come to Christ? Have you trusted in him? The benefit of having your heart examined and seeing your sin is not that you would wallow in it, not that you would run away in fear, but that you would take those sins to Jesus and have them removed. He shows us our sin because he wants to give us salvation. He shows us our sin because he wants to give us grace. Listen to the promises he wants you to have. Listen to this. I will grant that you eat at the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Isn't that amazing? Here's another promise of his. I will give you the crown of life. I will, you will not be hurt by the second death. I will give you hidden manna and a white stone and a new name on it. I will give you authority over the nations and the morning star. Guys, what else were you looking for? I just think the promises that Jesus makes and more are so astounding, so amazing, that we're crazy to want our sin instead. Crazy. The things that Jesus offers are unbelievable. And so if you're in a place right now and you're like, yeah, I understand the gospel, but I'm not willing to lose you know, a particular relationship. I'm not willing to lose a particular addiction or you know, a particular thing that I'm doing that I know that Jesus would not want for me. I'm not willing to lose that. I'm only give that up. I would just say, look again at the promises of Jesus. You're taking a very short view on things. He's offering you salvation. He's offering you resurrection. He's offering you himself this morning. And the Lord's Supper, guys, tells us how all this can be ours. That though we're sinners, Christ was faithful even to death, death on a cross. He was raised victorious. And all these sins that he's exposed, if we repent of them and trust in him, they're gone. As far as the east is from the west, like they're behind his back, you know, he's put them at the bottom of the sea. The Lord's Supper reminds us how he did it with his, his crushed body on the cross and his shed blood. The Lord's Supper, guys, also is a way in which Jesus gives us the hidden manna, right? It's our food along the way to strengthen us in faithfulness. The Holy Spirit feeds us on the very presence of Christ to strengthen us, to be able to do the things he's commanded, that he doesn't leave us without power to do it. And it's the Holy Spirit that gives us the power. And one of the ways he does is by taking the Lord's Supper. And so we're asked the Lord to feed us through this. If your hope of eternal life and of your hope um, for your soul and body in the world to come is in Christ alone, and it's your desire to live faithfully to him, we ask you to take this with us. So let's take the bread first. Take, eat, remember and believe that the body of Christ is the bread from heaven. Father, we're amazed that anyone would die for us. And then if we think about the one who died for us, that... The one who died for us is your very son. Innocent, perfect, 
God himself, that he would come and die for us is astounding. And then he would die for us in such a brutal way and to endure your own holy wrath that was due for our sin is amazing. And Lord, he did all this when we didn't care anything about him. And he did all this when he knew that we would often resist him. And he did this because he loves us. Because you love us, you sent your son. And we're so thankful for that, Father. We're so thankful that as that bread kind of disappears in our mouths, we can know that our sin has disappeared at the cross. Now let's take the cup. Take, drink, remember and believe that the blood of Christ is the cup of salvation. Father, we thank you for this cup that reminds us of the blood that makes the phallus clean. Lord, as we stand before your word and your examination, we know that's us. I think every Christian here can attest to the fact that they're the greatest sinner in the room. And that's because you've shown us our hearts. We know our own hearts. We know our own desires. We know the sin in our own hearts. And Lord, we're just so thankful that our consciences can be washed clean. Even now, I pray, Lord, that we would experience that, that our consciences would go out of here clean, knowing that they've been washed with the blood of the Lamb. There's no sin in this room that's stronger than your son Jesus' blood, and we thank you for that. Father, you've graciously accepted us as living members of your son Jesus, and you fed us with the spiritual food in your word and with the spiritual food of this sacrament of his body and blood. We pray, Lord, that you would send us out into the world in peace. Lord, that you'd send us away in joy, that you would send us away in gratitude. Lord, that we'd be the happiest people in our families, on our blocks, at our workplace, because we are the ones whose sin has been completely removed. We pray that you'd send us out in strength and encourage to love and serve you and our neighbor with gladness and fullness of heart. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covegraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.